views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of WTJX, its board, staff, or underwriters. Good day, and welcome to Ability Radio. I'm one of your hosts, Amelia Hedley-Lamont of the Disability Rights Center of the Virgin Islands, and today we are looking at a community that is, one might say, in crisis. Um, our special guest today is Dr. Dara Hamilton. She is a psychologist. Um, she has been pro- uh, practicing for individuals. She's also a teacher. So good day, Dr. Hamilton, how are you? Good day, I'm doing well and I'm happy to be here. One question that always comes to mind is, what made you choose the profession of psychology? Why? It's not easy. Well, you know, I consciously, I actually remember when I chose psychology, and I was in eighth grade, and I was watching Growing Pains, which was that show with Alan Thicke, and he was a psychiatrist, and he'd always have his friends come over to do consultation or something or the other, and I really enjoyed that relationship. One day I was just sitting there, he had a, a guy come over, and they were they were talking about whatever the issue was, and I said, wow, this is a pretty cool profession, being able to serve in that way. Um, I have never regretted it. I've never looked back. I said, that's what I want to do, and I went straight through, um, and I still feel like it's my purpose to to help serve in this way. Yeah, so That's yeah. understandable. Where, where did you go to school? I went to Howard University in Washington, D.C. Both my undergrad and graduate work were done there. And your doctorate was in what? What did you focus on? My doctorate is in clinical psychology, and my research at that time was on suicide. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, you you, you bring to bear a very important topic. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that uh, has been a a conversation, sadly, in this community is the incidence of suicide. Mm -hmm. What can you at least say to somebody who would say, well, why why are we having these events? What's bringing this on? Well, it can be, of course, a myriad of issues. We do have some larger societal issues that everybody knows about that add additional stressors. But of course, there is our biological predisposition to maybe anxiety disorders or depressive disorders or other forms of mental illness that might increase our risk of feeling really uncomfortable and having difficulty getting out of that state of discomfort. And then there are the social issues and concerns and our psychological um, makeup in terms of how we see the world and how we cope. Mm -hmm. And so all of those coming together tend to create a a situation where people may feel like they, they can't cope or this is lasting longer than they feel like they can tolerate. Right, and, and I, from what I understand, it's impacting a variety of age groups. And, uh, you know, I, I know that you have some experience working with young people in this mm-hmm. regard. What, what can you tell us about these pressure points that we, as parents or grandparents, need to be aware of? Well, you know, I think that we really need to look at the fact that uh, living itself can be a little stressful and look at where we can put supports in, where we can recognize whether someone is under undue stress and where we can remove some of that pressure or that expectation. Um, I've seen young people who engage in um, self-harming behaviors such as cutting and so forth. And a lot of times you'll find that this can occur where they are experiencing a lot of stress around academics, a lot of expectation that they're going to be perfect students or that they're going to succeed, a lot of rigidity around their behavior and, and not a lot of support that's coming from the home. It also can come up in relationships in within the school setting, correct? Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that? Same word. What do you mean? Well, I mean, I, 
frankly, I think it's very difficult to be a young woman ah. these days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there may be this kind of pressure, you know, oh. you have to look a certain way, have a certain weight, you know, right. wear certain clothes. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. boyfriend, you know, doesn't like me, mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of things. Those social issues are very, very high for people who are adolescents and pre-adolescents. Those issues around the way they look, around friendships, around having, um, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends around fitting in that's so important during those ages and it can definitely add another stress for uh, young people for adolescents um, in addition to needing to succeed in school and then what are we going to do when we when we finish school so there's mm -hmm. a lot going on during that time that I think as adults we tend to minimize we tend to say things like your children what do you have to be worried about right. you, you don't have to go to work all day but people's problems are important to them the people's problems or concerns impact them so we want to approach people with as much empathy as we can even our children why not especially our children what 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 can a parent do? What can a guardian or a grandparent or even an elder? What can they do if they, if they observe certain behaviors that may suggest that there's a problem? Well, you know, one of the basic things that we can do is increase our level of presence and support that we provide to our children and our adolescents. And this doesn't have to be something where we're saying, um, "Tell me everything that's happening to you at school," and uh, you know, where we drill them or make the situation uncomfortable. This can be something where let's watch a movie together, let's sit down together. We can give them extra hugs and love and attention. We can increase the routine in our family to help provide some sense of stability and support. Um, and we can look at what we're doing to add to their level of stress or pressure and try to remove some of that if we can. I know on our way up here, I was saying to you that I, I tend not to catas catastrophize anything mm -hmm. except, of course, <laughs> flying on an airplane. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's something that I would be more likely to catastrophize than other things. But most of the things that happen in this world, we survive and we can come back from. Mm -hmm. And that also includes things like failing a grade, you know, or even staying back. Like we don't want that. But if it's between, I'm going to put this extra pressure on you because you must get A's or your child getting a B, us being able to relax and say it's okay if they get a B, they're still going to be able to do well in school or in life. Right. Well, give us some other examples of how an elder can, you know, assist. Okay. You gave an example of um, going to a movie together. Mm -hmm. You know, there may be a certain time when your child may not want to spend time oh, with, yeah. with you. That's an issue. How do you, yeah. you know, make it fun or mm -hmm. engaging? You know? So ideally, we would have cultivated this relationship from the time that they were small and so that we have an ongoing relationship where that child is able to receive support from us. And it's not a conflictual relationship where all of a sudden we're doing something new that we hadn't done before. Mm -hmm. So sometimes there is a situation where a parent recognizes their child is in distress, but they don't have a relationship that would support them coming in and supporting their child. Their child doesn't feel that they can trust the parent or they don't feel as though they can be vulnerable with that parent or they haven't shared ideas, thoughts, movies, or other types of love and affection and support before. Mm -hmm. And so now you recognize your child is in distress and neither you nor the child know how to connect with each other in order for you to provide support. So that can be a more challenging situation. Mm -hmm. So what I'd recommend is if we have younger children that we work on building that relationship in an ongoing way so that when they are older children and adolescents even if they don't want to go to a movie with us our presence we can still um, provide presence with them in order to to provide that support and we can increase the likelihood that they're going to talk with us about things 
um, if we do, if we are in a situation where we have a child who's in distress and we don't have that relationship, we may actually need to talk with someone about developing the language around how we might be able to support that child. What can I say to this child, even though we don't have a relationship? Mm-hmm. I mean, we may be able to say something like, I know that I haven't been able to support you in the past. I noticed that you're having, um, you, you've been crying a lot and I'm really worried about you. I just want you to know that I'm here for you and I love you very much. Mm-hmm. You know, so we may have to work with someone to develop that language and to become more comfortable ourselves with using that language if we want to explicitly provide support for our children. Right. Otherwise, we will be in a position wondering what's happening, what's happening, and not really knowing what to do about that. Right. I, I remember I had a conversation with a, a colleague of yours, and we were in the car, and um, this this you know professional was saying that she was on a suicide watch, mm-hmm. and one of the things that they had to do was make sure that there were no drains in the sink because somebody can harm themselves that way. And I asked a very stupid question. I said, "But doesn't that hurt?" <laughs> but she explained to me that you know you're in such a state that it doesn't really resonate. Mm-hmm. The, the state of being in pain yeah. itself, right? Yeah. You're already in pain. So, right. so um, what is this? This is just more pain. I'm already in pain. Is right. that what we're thinking? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Tell us what kind of projects or activities you're engaged in now. Well, I am still teaching. I teach at the University of the Virgin Islands, and I am still in practice. And so I... Um, I do facilitate individual therapy, couples um, therapy. Um, I have some groups that I'm per, uh, working on designing, and mm-hmm. I'm kind of thinking of what my next next steps are going to be mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how I want my practice to go. I'm, I've been doing a, a TV show with Mr. Ali on the Government Access Channel. Great. We've been interviewing lots of different uh, people in the community. It's been very, very interesting. Uh, we've done shows on cardiac health. We've done, we had a neuroscientist come in and talk about, um, I, you know, the, I think, the, what did he talk about? He talked about lots of different things, um, you know, adolescent brain development and sleep and all these other things. Um, but we've had a range of people. We had the gentleman from the uh, Office of Gun Prevention, Gun Violence Prevention on. And uh, so that's been pretty, pretty fun and very informative. Okay. And, and I, I do recall that there was another project that you were interested in having to do with how to make uh, mental health services more accessible. The bench, sitting oh, at the yes, a park bench, the or red a, bench a bus, project. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Tell yes. us about that. Yeah. So uh, this idea was a it's an adaptation to the friendship bench program which is out of Zimbabwe Africa and what they did is they didn't have enough psychologists social workers counselors psychiatrists and so they trained grandmothers to sit on these red benches and if you felt like you needed some some support then you would just go sit on the the bench and next to the grandmother and so I really wanted to put this project together where we made that available to people in the community so that they could uh, be know that support is there um, and experience what it's like to be able to, to share and, and receive some support from, from people and recognize that it's a normal process. Right. You know, we fall down, we scrape our knee, and we say, hey, look at my knee, you know? <laughs> so it's a very normal process to also be able to say, hey, I lost my job today, and someone be able to provide support as much as it's an important process for us to say, hey, I bruised my knee, could you bandage it mm-hmm. for me? Um, how has that been going, or has that been sort of in advance? That has... Uh, Up and that's, down? Yes, that's... Uh-huh. that's that's up and down, and for a number of reasons, we did write a proposal around it, and it requires a lot of money in order to, you know, uh, 
man the benches and and so forth and there's a lot of logistical issues around that but we did kind of pilot it at the fair um last may mm-hmm. not this february but of course last may and uh people were very receptive to the idea of having this done all right did you have a team of uh elders ready to <laughs> dispense with advice people <laughs> wanted to sign up Really? They wanted to sign up as people who sat on the benches. And uh, if I said to someone, you know, when you see a bench, you've got to sit down. They were like, we will. So people were very receptive to the idea of doing this. In practice, it might be something else. uh, But who knows? So, I mean, at the fair, you had a bench. You didn't say step up here if you have a problem nothing no 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 out there but it's very interesting because quite honestly a big part of what works with therapy is the relationship that you develop with your therapist and the fact that there's this other person who cares about you who's in tune with you and who who's connecting with you on that level and um it may seem very simplistic from the outside, but on the inside, in terms of what's happening in our nervous system and in our brain, there's lots of different things that happen when we're connecting with other people that help facilitate that healing. So we don't always have to be talking about what, you know, what is this problem? We can be talking about just sharing your life. And there's been many experiences where I've had to interview people for various reasons, and it's not necessarily about solving a specific problem that's happening with them, but they always end up feeling better no matter what. And that's because of our connecting with each other. We are wired to support one another. We're wired to feel supported when we are in the presence of other people who are who are caring and who are open to that and who are sharing that um, mm. that energy with us. And so it, it happens even if we're not just talking about our problems. Right. Well, in your opinion, how has the p- pandemic, the COVID pandemic, impacted our community? Hmm. Well, ha, huh. wow. <laughs> I think we need to measure that a little bit more. Mm. Um, I'll tell you what I noticed. I've noticed at least that um, in some areas there's been a lot of job change there's been a lot of really uh, yeah i don't know if you guys have seen this or not but i've seen a number of people make significant changes to the work that they were doing um and i know at one point i was deciding myself hey you know do i want to continue in private practice do i want to do something else and i do feel like some of that was around the the pandemic i mean even our famous trevor noah stepped down right Right. and he said i think he even spoke to the fact that the pandemic put these things into um, place for him some ideas for him in terms of what's important Mm -hmm. um so i think that it has affected us in that that respect um i'd love to see what the research is saying right now because i've always had this theory that you know, it comes from general adaptation syndrome, the idea that we are, um, we start by, when we're faced with a stressor, we start by responding to that stressor, which we had to, right? We have the pandemic, we're starting to wear a mask, we're mm-hmm. really motivating our resources. And then we, we exhibit resistance, we really, really stick there. And we, we're, we're resisting this thing, we're coping with it in a very strong way. And then we get into the exhaustion phase, where our resources are depleted, eventually. So I've always thought that we would see the results of the pandemic later on mm-hmm. rather than sooner mm-hmm. in terms of our mental health, our anxiety, and, and, and so forth. So I'd love to see the, the research on that. Um, and if we look at some of the outcomes, just the social outcomes, it may help us understand what the true impact of the pandemic has been. I'm not quite sure that they're being measured or examined in that way, mm-hmm. but I think that that would give us some information about it. I know at UVI, our enrollment really dropped quite a bit over the course of the pandemic, mm-hmm. and 
hopefully it rebounds. But um, I think that is uh, part of the outcome. People being stressed, people needing to do other things, people not being able to take the vaccine. There's been a lot of outcome. Right. I mean, if my recollection serves me right, um, we as a community were not inclined or our numbers for taking the vaccine was noticeably lower than other communities. What's your take on that? Why they were noticeably lower? Mm-hmm. I know what has been said in terms of people preferring more natural routes in terms of care. We ha- There were so many conspiracy theories right. around that the vaccine, and there's that suspicion around that, mm-hmm. and that thing coming from the outside to us. Mm-hmm. And so I would think that that had a lot to do with why people were so hesitant right. to take that vaccine. All right, understandable. Um, tell us what the... As I know, before the, the, the show, we, we were looking at numbers and statistics. Mm-hmm. Where are we with regard to mental health care or wellness care? Um, how many people are we talking about as far as who may be impacted by so a problem, it, a disease? Oh, So in general, it's about one in four, one in five people have a diagnosable mental illness. And of course, we're not all going in for treatment. And that doesn't mean that it won't necessarily resolve. For example, about 50% of uh, people who have major depressive episodes tend to recover from those episodes on their own and without intervention. Mm-hmm. We know that about one, one in two, so about half of people across their lifetimes will have some diagnosable mental illness at some point. And again, we may not come in for treatment or we may not come in to be formally diagnosed but we may be anxious or we may develop a substance use disorder to to um, self-medicate around that or we may just suffer uh, or it may affect our our relationships and our other functioning um, so we definitely want to recognize that there is a state of health that is different than being in a state of dis-ease or unease and if we're finding ourselves in a state where we're suffering, then it's definitely time for us to get some help with that so we can live a better quality of life. You know, I have this theory around the fact that many of us, and it's probably historical because we know what a difficult history we've had as people, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. in general, um, that we get used to in some ways living with a certain level of tension and that becomes the norm for us. And so it can be difficult to think that um, there's another place that we could be. This is normal, you know? So we don't look for uh, ways to ease it because this is just what life is like. Life is hard. Life is is whatever it is. I've been looking at this. I watched this thing on Instagram yesterday about the four-day work week. It was a NPR, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a little post. It It was really cute. And I remember after the hurricanes talking with at least two senators about um, us going to shorter work days, mm-hmm. right? Um, if we could just keep them at right. these short days, people will be happier, people will be healthier, people will be able to spend time with their children, people can right. go to their children's games, they can right. support their children's mental health, right. um, you know, they can help them with homework, they can cook, and so forth, and we could just keep the salaries right where they are, and they were just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I'll tell you, all the research on these four-day work weeks is so positive. Yeah. They're saying exactly the same things that mm-hmm. your girl said six mm-hmm. years ago mm-hmm. about this that we should at least try. And so, you know, a big part of what I'd like to do, as you guys know, is move to Mexico and um, <laughs> do this, uh, really work on systemic changes that can support health. And I think we can do some of that here. We don't have to follow fashion to the States. We can be trailblazers. Right. Um, but anyway... 
a little bit of a tangent there, but it's it's all around the idea of mental health and our ability to be energetic enough and available enough to our children and our adolescents not being burned out, right? So that we can um, develop these relationships with them. Yeah, so, I mean, I remember, as as you mentioned, after the hurricane, we did, for example, internally, when I I had that, (laughs) when I had that capacity, we did shorten our workday and it did make a difference. Made a huge difference. Huge difference. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's what they're finding with respect to the four-day work weeks. Are people more productive? They are healthier, and and they're paying them the same amount. And the world is not ending because they're paying them the same amount that they would pay them to burn themselves out, be unhealthy, engage in presenteeism, right? Being on the job but not really working. Right. (laughs) Having to take sick days, using their health insurance more. All of those things come into play. And so... um, yeah. Well, that's. I think that's an issue that still should be, you know, touted about. I think it makes sense. To I'm me. sure it will eventually come here. Yeah. <laughs> My goodness. I, I, I'm sure you're familiar with the term weathering. Weathering. Tell me. It's what you've pretty much touched upon earlier. That we are so used to being discriminated against, dissed, victims of racism. That it impacts you internally. It, it's 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 you know impacts your health in a negative way. Yes. High blood pressure, right. stress, that kind of thing. And that's a new term of art. There's there's mm-hmm. some new uh, publications that addresses that. Mm-hmm. And at first, mm-hmm. when it was raised with the scientific community, we're like, oh no, nah, what are you talking about? Oh no, no, we know about mm-hmm. that. You know, um, we know that you can measure the impact of all of that on people's lives of racism and discrimination. Right. And though, um, when we look at our relationships, we expect a certain level of tension in there too. Maybe we do, or maybe we don't. Mm-hmm. Maybe we expect ease in our relationships. I don't know. Let's do some research and figure that out. But, you know, we may expect that. And so we end up staying in situations that are harmful to us because it's the norm. Mm -hmm. And it may have been the norm with which we grew up. So now we're in that norm again in our new relationships. And we just kind of tolerate and deal with it because that's what they're like. Um, And it can be with our job. This is how jobs are supposed to be. And this is how Mm -hmm. people are supposed to speak to you and those types of things. And so we tolerate it because it's the norm Mm -hmm. of how things are supposed to operate. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, but then if we've grown up in a healthier environment, one that's more supportive, uh, then we may be able to better recognize that we are in an unhealthy environment because we have that comparison point. Right. If somebody's having a hard time and they recognize it, what do you suggest that they do? Go to your doctor. I'd say go to the doctor. Um, You can go to your general practitioner. We can talk with them about what's happening with us. A lot of times psychological problems may manifest with physical symptoms. And we want to rule out any physical cause of of anything that's happening to us. There are uh, medical issues that can cause psychological symptoms as well. So we want to rule that out. So it and most of the time, we're very fam- we're re- really comfortable with our doctors. We are comfortable going to our primary care person because we've seen them all the time. So we can talk with them about our emotional health and, and so forth. And they're oftentimes willing to prescribe something or refer us to someone to talk to about that. So that's one place to go. If we feel like there are things that, that, that it's manageable enough that we want to do some stuff ourselves around that, we can look at if we're feeling burned out, maybe taking some days off from work and seeing if that helps us reset. If there's a specific problem that's causing this mm-hmm. problem mm-hmm. with us, us to feel this way, then we can work on 
solving that problem or getting some support around that problem. For example, if I had a boss that was highly negative and very critical and, you know, harassing and abusive, that's a problem. That has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with me, but it's impacting me. Mm -hmm. I may be able to figure out how do I intervene? Do I need to go to human resources? What supports do I need around me? Do I need to get an attorney? Like, what do I need? And then we're solving that problem Mm -hmm. so that it's not impacting us in the same way uh, or we're able to get out of it. Um, so we can either solve the problem or we can get support around solving those problems. We can also do some exercises such as the breathing exercises, meditation, eating healthy, looking at our balance in our lives and setting boundaries. I will tell you that boundaries is a big part of what we talk about, of course, Mm -hmm. in, in, um, therapy is helping people set those because, Many of us grew up in situations where people didn't respect them mm-hmm. or didn't show us how to set appropriate boundaries for ourselves. Um, and if I tell people all the time that boundaries are the thing that keeps us safe. They keep us from becoming overwhelmed as a system. Mm-hmm. So if we didn't have these walls, everybody and anybody would come in here and this room would become would be overwhelming. It right. would be overwhelmed by the number of people. So our boundaries help keep us safe and protect the integrity of us as an individual or, or a human being. Um, and so we may be able to identify those boundaries on our own, or we may need some support in helping us identify and set boundaries. Many of us are afraid to do that. We're uh, concerned that if we say to someone, you know, I'm not able to make it on Monday, but I can do that on Friday, mm-hmm. that that person's going to be angry with us. And so we have to show up and people please and be everything for everybody. So then we become overwhelmed, right? right? Because we're doing that. So, and I'll say that those are the types of things that we do talk about in therapy, which can for some people feel very mysterious. Uh, so I just want to put it out there that it's not that mysterious. It really is looking at uh, things that, that would um, be helpful to us, things, problems that we face on a daily basis and figuring out better ways to respond to them or rather healthier ways to respond to them. Okay, those are some good pointers. There was a big debate a few years back about how, whether psychologists should have the ability to write prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Where are we on that? It was a big, big debate. It was a huge debate. And, you know, we do have several states that do have prescription privileges for psychologists. I think there are five or seven states. And the territory is not one of them, although years ago psychologists here did lobby Mm -hmm. for prescription privileges, and that would require us to go back to school. Mm -hmm. So it's not a matter of, here you go, yay, you get privileges, go ahead and start writing scripts. It's not like that. We'd actually have to go back to school. There's a curriculum and, and so forth around that. Um, I say more power to the psychologists who want to do that. Um, and so, you know, that's great. I mean, I, th- I think for myself, it's, it's, um, it's a useful tool. Medication is a useful tool in terms of someone's healing. It can help provide lots of support. And in some cases, it's necessary. So I support people using uh, medication as needed. Um, in terms of psychologists and their privileges, I probably won't be moving into that um, myself. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think for the states where they have psychologist privileges, uh, to prescribe that, that they're probably very well trained and, uh, it's appropriate. So, um, where are we with regard to telehealth? That's another oh. issue Okay, that's been a, a topic of some contention. Okay. okay. Well, I know we're running out of time. We're running out of time. Um, we'll have to bring you back. That's all I yeah, have to say. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Folks, I want to thank you for listening. 
Dr. Hamilton, thank you so much for your wealth of information. We'll bring you back again, please, so it's we can continue with this subject. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of WTJX, its board, staff, or underwriters.